Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are in Parshat Re'eh this morning, uh, the book of Deuteronomy. Parshat Re'eh begins at chapter 11, verse 26. And even though, as you know, we always read on the triennial cycle, which means we're going to go to a different part of Re'eh, I want us to tie, as our commentator that we're going to look at, Larry Bach does, we're going to tie that middle portion to the first verse. So if you can find the first opening verse of Re'eh, chapter 11, verse 26 of Deuteronomy. So find that opening verse, and then I want you to... Put your finger at chapter 13. All right, so if you've got your fingers in those two places, we're going to look at some of these verses. We're going to look at the opening verse, but let's go ahead and um, read 26 through 28. Someone want to read, please? See this day I set before you blessing and curse. Blessing if you obey the commandments of your God Adonai that I enjoin upon you this day. And curse if you do not obey the commandments of your God Adonai. And turn away from the path that I enjoin upon you this day and follow other gods whom you have not experienced. Okay, so this is the this is the the seriously impactful statement and then there's going to be this ritual about blessings and curses on Mount Grizim and Mount Eval. We're not going to go there. Um, but the the rabbis take this opening commandment from Parshat Re'eh and they expound on it as they are wont to do um, in lots of amazing ways. I want to talk about just a few of them, but let's get really familiar with the language of this verse because, um, like I said, um, our commentators are also going to tie it to um, the other place in our parsha, the second triennial reading, um, a little later on. Re means what? Re exactly. It means see. Right. Anochi's talking about whom? I, uh, God. Right. So, in this case, I is God. So re anochi. So behold, look, see. Right. Anochi noten. Noten is what? Give. I give. What's the next word? Lifnechem. All right. What is lifnechem? In front of you. <laughs> In front of your face. Them. Ah, right. So it's mm-hmm. not going to be so simple. What would you need me for? <laughs> so lifnechem. Literally before y'all. Right? What is Notain referring to? What's being given? The blessings of the curse. Bracha. Blessing. And the curse. Uklala. 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 Right? And curse. All right. One word's missing here. What's the word that's missing? After Lifnechem. Yes, that's a big one, as you can imagine. Right? Hayom means what? Today. 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 
the day, literally, is today. So, look, I give before y'all today blessing and curse. This, for the rabbis, is a statement for all time. What is what does this day mean to the rabbis? Every day. Every day. Right now. Today. It doesn't mean today, that Thursday afternoon that this conversation happened. Today, Hayom means this day, look, I set before you bracha uklala. I set before you both of them, says God. Every single today. Yum, yum. Yum, yum. Blanche? Why the curse? Why the curse? <laughs> So, it's a good question. The the biblical scholar in me is going to talk to you about the ancient Near East, right? And the ways that they understood the world. And the way they understood the world is that there were forces of good and forces of not good. And you unleash them with certain words and certain behaviors. Ancient Israel was a part of a worldview that believed Certain behaviors and certain words set in motion those energies that we would call negative. Curses. We, of course, don't read this to in that way. What does it mean for us? I'm going to ask you, but I'll set it up in terms of Torah doesn't come to talk. Torah comes always to talk about what is. It comes to explain the world as it is. So if we're talking about things as they are, I'll ask you, what is curse? War. War. Bad stuff. Bad stuff. <laughs> Since ancient times, war has been at the top of the list. Because war really, what's war really? It's a manifestation of our worst inclinations to greed to be right, to be so right that I kill you because you're so wrong. Right? You know, so it's a, it's an enactment of our absolute worst tendencies as human beings. And war can be, of course, the times that our greatest triumph as people willing to sacrifice our own individual lives for a greater good are enacted as well. And last week's Torah study, Rabbi Rubin made a big point. Who? Rabbi Rubin, remember him? <laughs> that there's a vav there. It doesn't say blessing or curse. It says blessing and curse. So that how does that open. change it? Well, that we, it's not all blessing or all curse, but life has, as we probably all learned, it's ups and it's downs. It's goods and it's bads. And for the rabbis and for a lot of the commentators, we're going to, you know, look to in our time... It really is about the verb re'eh. Both are equally true. Both are equally present. Hayom. Every day, both of these are equally present. So what is the spiritual teaching for us? Re'eh. Look. But that's... And not, so, and not see black and white. Nazi one or the other. So to appreciate some gray. And perspective is everything. 
and perspective, which is directly related to re'e, is everything. This is so many wisdom traditions' truths, right? That it's really about perception. How would you contrast that with Shema, which is used so much as here? So before, so many times Moses says Shema, like Shema Yisrael. Right. Yisrael is a different. So in general, I would say, I mean, and this is just off the top of my head. I would have to look more carefully, obviously. But Shema to me in Torah language is often about observe, like observance, meaning do it. Like listen up means take it in. Tishma'u means listen up, y'all. And that means do what I'm about to tell you. Re'eh is very close to the English, oh, I see. Right? I, I see. What does that mean when we say I see? Like understand. I understand. Yeah. Right? It's about, it's about incorporating mm-hmm. something, pers- having a perspective on something, which is a little different than Tishma'u, listen up, y'all need to do what I'm telling you. But that's just off the top of my head. Um, all right. So, and it's very much, this re'eh used here and many other places is very much like the English Look, I have something I need to tell y'all, right? Like it, it's very much the same in biblical Hebrew. All right. One more thing I want to have us get really clear about. Tell me something about the grammar. What am I, what am I lifting up by circling these two if I talk to you about grammar? Ha 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 ha. Thank you, Laura. This is singular. This is that doesn't match. This should be plural. Right? Hebrew, it has to match. The verb has to take the form of whatever you're it's gotta be singular or plural, us, you, them, him, her, it, right? So either this has to be singular or this has to be plural. Okay, the rabbis know that there can't ever, God forbid, be a mistake in Torah, so this is an engraved invitation for the rabbis. Talk to me, rabbis. Why is it, why is it like this? It doesn't match, Mickey. Well, you're, 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 you're presenting it to everybody. You're, you're directing for each one personally. So it's true for... All y'all, each one of you. Nice. It's true for everybody, and I, Anochi, am giving it to all of you. There's no secrets. It's not just some people. It's not just the priests who are going to have this knowledge. Everyone. I'm, it's revelation for everyone, and it's addressed to every single each person because only each of us can change our perspective only each of us can control what we do what we are about what we say what we enact blessing or curse talk to me about that <laughs> because if i can make my own personal decision not agreeing with the group 
and you can make your own personal decision, which may be different than my own personal decision, and also be different than the group, and on and on and on, what happens to the group? So what do we do with that? Come to study <laughs> Come to Tar study. We brought my Bernstein. That's exactly the right answer, Paula Fern. Um, so that's really always the potential that Blanche was talking about. The potential, because there's individuals with our own opinions and our own ways of seeing things, the potential is always war or always I oppress you. Or you know we fight about it, or we don't talk to each other and go our separate ways about it, right? And if you do that with everybody, you've got a mess on your hands. But it's true. We do each have our own unique perspective. So how does it ever become leaf nechem? How does it ever become communal? That's really a lot of, I think, what Torah is about. But Laura has something that she's going to share with us about it. So fundamentalism answers you, Paula, with you're exactly right. That would be chaos if we each discerned for ourselves what the right and good thing to do. Thank God, God has told us what to do. And there's great comfort in saying, wow, if we just do what God says, there won't be chaos. It'll be lifnechem. We have revelation. We know what to do. Oof, thank God. Right? Of course, what we know is who interprets revelation, right? Who who interprets what is bracha and what is klala? Who determines what is kosher, what is not? I mean, you know, you can you can rest comfortably in fundamentalism to a certain extent, but you're kidding yourself if you think it's there in the text. Somebody's got to interpret that text, right? And those are the people who then are making the decisions for everybody else about what everybody else is going to do. Could you spend a moment on, on today? Um, I think we found after a lot of years that in order to internalize something, you have to keep repeating it. It's not just going to prevent when you're in trouble. So this particular idea that wake up in the morning and know that each day comes a blessing and a curse, do it every single day or you never... I think that's absolutely true. That the rabbis hammer this Hayom business for exactly that reason. They understand any spiritual tradition worth its salt understands practice means repetition. And practice means a commitment again today that I'm going to choose bracha, that I'm going to choose blessing. So we got to tell ourselves several times a day, right? Do it. Rabbi, uh, I have a neighbor of somewhat different persuasion, and he asks me, why is your God such a vengeful God? And I don't know how to answer that. Yeah. So, again... They usually are talking about Torah, the God of Torah, the character God, 
that we talk about a lot in here. Um, and the, in the ancient world, life was violent. It was hugely violent and disruptive. And there was famine, there was starvation, there was disease, there was war. It, it, was, it was constant, your fear, that your children would be carried off. How do you explain a world like that, right? So they're projecting onto the world as it is what they understood to be if there's if there's goodness at the center of the universe and that goodness is what we call God, then there has to be an explanation for all the tragedy that we see. And either it's random, like the Greeks and the Romans, Zeus hurls something at Hera, she hurls something back, and we get obliterated in the middle. That's one way to look at the world. It just is. It's chaos. Jews didn't do that. Ancient Israel didn't do that. They didn't accept that it was all random. They believed, rightly or wrongly, that there was an all-powerful, all-knowing being at the center of it all that was good. And that means anything bad that happens must be earned or deserved. God is not vengeful. God is just. There's a difference. I'm not saying this is our worldview, that I would not defend that theology. But that was their theology, was that if something terrible happened, if God is good, we must have deserved it somehow. We we earned it. We screwed up. And so that's why God has to enact terrible things, because we still don't get it. That's not our theology, but that was... That's why there's a vengeful God in Torah, in my opinion. But there's another side to the God in Torah, and that is a forgiving God. Of course, of and course. The Torah doesn't talk of eternal damnation. Of course. And doesn't talk of lack of forgiveness for the evil. It always talks about shuva and and return. But but my bet is Reuben is talking to somebody yeah. who was a supersessionist. So if you've got yeah. a supersessionist, their God is always more loving than our God. Their God turns <laughs> the other cheek. Ours doesn't. So yes, ours wins in the vengeful category. Right? In the violence category, our God wins. Now, of course, they always turn to those texts. That's the other thing. They turn to the texts they want to lift up as the awful God so that they can have their supersessionist theology that says their God's better. <laughs> Their God is more loving and forgiving and died for our sins. Okay, that's not violence though, right? Somebody <laughs> dying so that, okay, but killing your only son, okay, whatever. But, right, it's a, there's an agenda to why is your God so vengeful? There's already an agenda there. There's already a lack of appreciation of the breadth and depth of the God concept, even in ancient Israel. Um, it's so some kinds of Christianity they have a very vested they have a vested interest in in taking the place of Israel and so their religion supersedes the New Testament supersedes the Old Testament Buddhism doesn't care about our tradition or our texts Christianity had to because it's reading itself as the new Israel and a new deal. And the new deal has to be better than the old deal, or why would you do it? It's the new and improved. It's new and improved. So if you have to have the New Testament be more attractive 
You need to point out all the ways that that old stuff, that's just an angry, vengeful, immature God. Our God, Jesus, and the Father, right? That's love. That's forgiveness. That's redemptive. I had never heard of the word, mm-hmm. the concept. No. Islam is also supersession, by the way. So it's... it's Ishmael, not Yitzchak, who's involved in the binding. I always get down to the personal. And in my life, my mother uh, dreamed her life away. She could not be a mother or a wife. But we kept her at home. My daughter, who was born in um, 1946, she was born with three birth defects. Now the family turned on us. I was the cold-hearted daughter, and uh, I didn't handle my child right, and therefore she was sick. And that's a burden. What it did, it made me an activist so I can get the physical help that my daughter needed. And we kept my mother home until she died, even though the doctor said she could have killed you all. And I got no pats on the back. And so, I guess it's still with me, because they were all orthodox. So, Blanche, you are a living example of Re'eh. You were given circumstances that were not what any of us would choose. And instead of internalizing all that was coming at you from fundamentalist Jews, right, and their judgment and their need to put stuff on you so that they didn't have to deal with the tragedy, right, of what was happening, they would put it on you. That feels so much better, doesn't it? Um, you chose rather than internalize that and let that become about depression and guilt and shame and all of that awfulness, you chose to, to become an activist. You chose to use that anger, that frustration, that sadness, that whatever. You chose to dig deep and use it as a poet, as an artist, as a loving wife and mother, and that is what the rabbis promise us is possible. You are living proof that it's possible. Because often, don't we want to turn to the circumstances and say that they dictate whether our lives are filled with bracha or klala? Sure we do. If I were richer or thinner or whiter or blonder or fill in the blank, I would, my life would be filled with bracha. And any spiritual tradition worth its salt knows, Blanche, what you just said is absolutely the truth. That the circumstances are the circumstances. What's up to us is perspective. <clears throat> what we do with that. Do we, out of all that stuff that happened to you, you made bracha for so many others. We've heard your stories in here about the ways you were active fighting for people to have housing in a time where they could be told, forget about it, you're the wrong color. 
right? And that's the challenge for us. And it's a challenge. Let's look at the next part of our text that I wanted us to look at, chapter 13. So holding this as the setting, right? We're not leaving this. We're bringing it with us to chapter 13. So remember, this is the language of Torah. We're not going to take it literally. We're going to parse it, I promise. Hang tight. It's okay. Breathe. And we're going to read at chapter 13, verse 1, somebody. Be careful to observe only that which I enjoin upon you. Neither add to it nor take away from it. If there appears among you a prophet or a dream diviner, and he gives you a sign or a portent saying, let us follow and worship another god whom you have not experienced, even if the sign or portent that he named to you comes true, do not heed the words of that prophet or that dream diviner. For the Lord your God is testing you to see whether you really love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul. Follow none but the Lord your God and revere none but him. Observe his commandments alone and heed only his orders. Worship none but him and hold fast to him. All right, now let's skip ahead. Go to seven. If your brother, your own mother's son, or your son or daughter, or the wife of your bosom, or your closest friend entices you in secret, saying, come let us worship other gods, whom neither you nor your fathers have experienced, from among the gods of the peoples around you, either near to you or distant anywhere from one end of the earth to the other, do not assist or give heed to him. All right, we're going to stop there. All right. So... Another place, the and for we're not going to go into the whole capital punishment business. For them, this was, we've talked about this. In a theocracy, God is king. You betray the king, what happens? We still believe this, you're dead. It's called treason. And we still believe it, and we still kill pe- people for it. We're just not going to, we're not going to focus on that part. That's not what I, what that tells us is how important this was, right? How, how seriously Torah takes this. All right. So what I want to focus on, again, what any wisdom tradition um, knows, but we kind of read over kind of quickly, is if someone entices you, right, to worship other gods, what is the definition by t- of Torah about the problem with that? What is the issue with that? Other gods that what? You haven't experienced. You have not experienced. experienced. All right. This is hugely important for the rabbis and for our spiritual tradition into today. The key is God doesn't make this claim out of nowhere. Pick me, I win, right? Worship anybody else and you're toast. I'm the God you've experienced. So why would you go somewhere else? You know how to do things so that your life is bracha and not klala. You know that. You have experienced that. Going against that experience is not just stupid. It is life-threatening. It is detrimental at the level of absolute meaning. And we do it all the time. We go against what we've experienced all the time. 
because we tend to look at everybody else. And the rabbis say, that is another reason this is in the singular. Don't worry about everybody else. If everybody else is like, oh, no, this guy is fault. Right? Okay, you can go there. Is that helpful, Blanche? No. They were all telling you. You're terrible. You're awful. You're terrible. All right. That's fine. That's what they're saying. You have to have the strength and the commitment and the discipline and the hope and the faith to look for yourself. Turn to what you have experienced yourself. That's what you need to worship and put at the top of your priority list. The top of your understanding of what defines the nature of reality that we would call God is what you've experienced. It's what you Each of you sees not what everybody else is saying is true. Does that say search outside of what you experienced and try other gods? This is saying no. You need to live into your own experience of what is worthy of our service. Even if y'all want to try others. Correct. Okay, so Correct. I was thinking of the other way around. No. If, if everybody else wants to be about whatever, too, too bad. That's them. And, and, and the teaching is don't you worry about it. Right? Just, it is like, like let that go. You just worry, you Israelite. Shema Israel. You Israelite, just worry about your own. Business. Well, we Sheldon. Have, we have interventions all the time where you experience things that are not good for you and people tell you to change, and that's considered a positive to listen to other people. So, hopefully, what those other people are saying is so, Amy, you've experienced some things that have taken you down a certain path. How's that working for you? How's that experience been for you? Is that filling your life with bracha? Generally, what those interventions are trying to get people to do is stop numbing and turning away and denying and instead experiencing right how they're living right now and what that's bringing them. It, so I know it sounds like you're listening to them, isn't that paying attention to everybody else? But really, when it's when it's about the right thing. It's them trying to tell you, look, look at your own life. Stop turning away by drinking or shopping or having sex or whatever it is we do. Look, is this really how you want to live? Really? And generally when interventions are successful, it's because somebody really stops and looks and is willing to face the pain and the fear and the shame and all that goes with intervention kinds of situations, right, to say, no, this isn't bracha. Getting back to the story here, the experience, the experience of God they have had, this has to do with having been freed to Egypt, and this is, we're in the desert, and everything that happened in the desert. And so to me... 
the God you've experienced goes back to your collective history. Yes. And this is kind of God saying, you have a collective history. <clears throat> you have an ongoing, you've had a relationship with me, God. Yes. And that is something that you should not abandon. Yes. So you have just quoted the Vilna Gaon, who we're going to look at. The Vilna Gaon agrees with you. Um, wait, but it's a packet. So there's two teachings, one from Rabbi Yael Shai and one from, from um, Rabbi Larry Bach. So you should have both of those. Four pages. You have, should have four pages total. So get Rabbi Larry and Rabbi Yael in hand. And we will... Literally, what is Gaon? Gaon, a genius. So the Vilna Gaon was the genius of Vilna. He was a smart guy. He was a smart guy. He was a renowned Torah scholar. All right. So we're going to go first to Rabbi Larry Bach. Both of these come to us from the Institute for Jewish Spirituality that you know I've been involved with for a long time. Well, I don't know what y'all did. I had them in order. Four pages. All right. people don't have any of Will you share with Mickey? Okay. Don't worry, we'll figure it out. Okay. All right, so looking at Rabbi Larry Bach. I'm going to read it anyway. Pam knows me. She's going to read anyway. Don't worry about it. All right, so we're going to focus on this term that you have not known, that you have not experienced. And Rabbi Bach turns to Sharon Salzberg who talks about the difference between bright faith and verified faith. So guess which one we're talking about, right? Gods who are not, that you have not experienced. If it's in our experience, it must be verified faith. <laughs> Did you think this was going to be like simple and straightforward and easy, Laura? All right. So looking at that middle paragraph, deeper, more mature faith, right? The sentence begins in contrast. Anchored in our own experience of the truth, centered in the deeper understanding of the nature of the mind and body that we come to in meditation practice. I'll add the words for example. There are other ways, right? This deeper level of faith is called verified faith, which means it is grounded in our own experience. The inspiration and confidence we feel arises from our experience rather than coming from someone outside of ourselves. He's relating this to our Parsha. Drop down to the very bottom. Look, this day I set before you blessing and curse, right? Turn the page over. 
Other instances appear as Torah describes various ways in which people might go astray. And that's where we were reading in chapter 13, yes? False teachers bearing signs and performing miracles. Family or friends coking us, co- co- <laughs> coaxing us to leave the proper path. Even whole towns led astray by charlatans in the religion business. In each case, asher lo yadatem, right? That you do not know stands out, signaling the nature of the offense. In each case, the warning is this. Do not deny your own verified experience of yud heh vav Turning away from that path, according to Deuteronomy, is an unforgivable sin. Drop all the way down to the bottom of the page. Bright faith, he says, is one of the, as Sharon Salzberg describes as one of those moments that like busts you wide open. You meet a person, you encounter a teaching, and you just get, whoa, like busted wide open. You're like, whoa, yeah, right? After we've walked, so that's not a bad thing. It's not enough, is what the teaching is. After we've walked through the door of bright faith and expanded our consciousness in verified faith, we might arrive with effort, time, and some grace at what Salzburg describes as abiding faith. This is a faith that, quote, does not depend on borrowed concepts. Rather, it is the magnetic force of a bone-deep lived understanding, one that draws us to realize our ideals, walk our talk, and act in accord with what we know to be true. Attaining that type of faith is quite literally the journey of a lifetime, and our Parsha's very name reminds us to take each step with our eyes open. Laura, is it still an oxymoron? Verified faith. Verified faith. Yeah. Laura thought that sounded oxymoronic. Yeah. Still? What about, what about people who hear God talking to them and telling them to do horrible things? All right, that's called pathology. So how did Blanche know what to do, given what everybody was saying to her? And did she know it at the time she was doing it, or on reflection, looking back? I had a very good father. (laughs) (laughs) You experienced love that was sustaining and healing and grounding, and you knew if you stayed in that experience and did that with your daughter, screw the rest of them. Screw what they have to say. 
Right, right. So that that is not faith. I think what Salzberg is saying that I like and that he's quoting is that's not outside of us. That's not I don't know what to do. That is faith that is grounded in a bone deep understanding that the kind of love dad gave you was sustaining and healing and that's all you needed to be about with your daughter because it would do the same for her. And that's a faith that's not about knowing up here, right? That's the kind of faith that's about living what we what we know, what we've experienced to be true. Was how? Was by remembering the strength and love of a father or a mother. Um, and you also find very young children who are Holocaust survivors who didn't have an experience and lost that experience of extremely damaged. They may have they might have survived physically, but they're even until today, very damaged people. Because to me, there is, is there a Salzburg drawing distinction between what we would call the difference between knowledge and wisdom? I, I think so. The saying that may be objective, but this is really about truly understanding how the world really works as opposed to what you've sort of seen as you were younger and growing. Mm-hmm. I think that's on the same continuum. You know, knowledge, wisdom is on the same continuum as bright faith, verified faith, and abiding faith. Like we're moving towards abiding faith. That's the journey of a lifetime. Verified faith I have access to now. Understanding of, in a certain way that you're saying that putting all together all of these life experiences with the right faith and the, and the other things to get abiding faith to take you to the end. To me, verified faith means that you have accepted on faith, and I think we all understand that I'm using. And experience has shown us that it works. That's verified. Verified, you can't verify faith itself, except by experience. The, accepting the faith and, and uh, doing things on faith and having an outcome that is okay, that's verified. Right. Your daughter is verification. Daughters. <laughs> <laughs> well, we were talking about the specific circumstances of one. Did you ever read the book Under the Banner of Heaven? It was about the Mormon breakaway, uh, Mormon Jeffs, who truly believed that the modern day Latter day Saints are heretics because their faith showed them the right thing was based upon the early traditions of multiple marriages. That was the verified. Everybody else to say, you know, how this this has got to come. To, how do we know what the verified faith? Let's see what the Gaon has to say about it. Let's turn to Yael Shai. 
And I, I'm not being evasive, I promise. You know, I don't shy away from the hard questions. Go to the middle of Rabbi Yael Shai's piece on the first page. The difficulties in the details. The Vilna Gaon, an 18th century rabbi, parses the first verse of the Parsha, unpacking where the difficulties are, David, that and several of you have lifted up. He begins by saying that the reason the word re'eh, see, is in the singular, is so that a person will not say, what am I that I should choose for myself a good path if most of the world is behaving wickedly? It is up to each to see what is before you. You do what you need to do and do not take notice of the world. The Vilna Gaon asks us not to rationalize our behavior or build our lives in relation to others. Moses sees this threat in several different contexts, right? So first, in relation to other nations, we get that verse from Torah, turn your paper over. Second, in relation to one's own family, we just read that verse, right? That you're being called by your, like, Blanche, called by your own family into stuff that, right, is not what you need to be about. And Rabbi Yael Shai says this is and, and I promise we're going to get there to the to the to, to your question. Um, she says this is comparative mind, right? So what is leaf nechem, which we parsed earlier? Re'eh, just worry about what you got going on. Don't worry about everybody else. She says this is the Facebook syndrome, right? We look at everybody else who's having summer vacations in Europe and on cruises and, um, you know, fill in the blank, you know, bought a new blah, 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 right? Has beautiful, happy children and everybody's always happy and they're always so beautiful and they're always so rich and they're so successful, right? And I just stub my toe, I don't have my makeup on, I feel like crap, I didn't sleep enough, right? So, and that's where we go. We judge our insides based on everybody else's outsides. That is our favorite thing to do as human beings. And this is because we focus on what we see out there, and then I never measure up to that. And that quickly becomes a way towards klala, towards me behaving in ways that really then manifest unhappiness, stinginess, right, depression, and like all, all that stuff is comparative mind. So that's one of the teachings that, that she brings about this verse and you know, in general, that we can't... Um, Moshe's telling us to choose the path of blessings at these moments, letting go of the flimsy map of other people's opinions and lives and reclaiming our own. Now, to David's point, I promised, finding the path. Of course, this all assumes we know who we are, differentiated from our friends, neighbors, and families, what if we aren't sure? So to David's point, what about the people who are so sure in their verified faith that, and they're coming up with something crazy and a bunch of others are, are too, so they're all living this verified faith that's absolutely crazy. How do you know? Becomes the question. A little bit about what Bert was saying. Like, what, you know, what if you're being, what, you know, what if your verified faith is that you need to kill people who disagree with you or whatever? The Vilna Gaon predicts this confusion. And examining the word that Moshe uses, lifnechem, before you, he explains, and if one would say, how could I know which is the good path and which is the bad path, because everything is obscure and hidden, meaning 
truth. Like, who knows what the heck it is, really. So it is written before you. And so what the Vilna Gaon does is plays with this and says, don't worry about it. Leif Nechem, don't, don't read it in front of you. Leif Nechem, read it temporally before you. We have a history as a people, like Bert was saying earlier. We have verified experience of when we live into bracha. What are the ways we do that? When we behave X, Y, Z way, our lived experience, not just as individuals, but as a people, is here. We have it. We just need to come to Torah study. Right? We we have it. So don't don't worry. Look at our experience as a history. I mean, look at our historical experience as a people. We have generations of people who have lived lives of blessing and richness and goodness and depth and understanding and compassion, right? And they, thank God, wrote it down. They told us if we study. So the question is, how do I know? What if I, you know, certain things I can know in my verified faith, but what about the big ones? And what if we're all going off the cliff and don't even know it? We're happily skipping towards the edge. Well, we have a record of our people's hardest, most horrific experiences. Think the Holocaust and pogroms. And, 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 unfortunately, we have a bunch of them. And how even with that do we know that we're living into what's going to take us to bracha, to real verified and hopefully abiding faith? Look at the record. What's worked? Leela? Even also with the record, I grew up as, as a conflict of the Mormons like that in the town where the world headquarters are instead in the temple and they will tell you why they broke up and, and all this kind of stuff. And and the Mormons was started by a guy who went into the woods and looked into a hat and pulled things out and said, oh, but I lost the hat. And she's kind of craziness. And so as a child, growing up in, in that religion and not even knowing that, because um, I stopped being in that religion at 10 years old, I had this deep understanding that this was not the way to go. And I used to ache for all the Jewish people and stuff when I was younger, but I couldn't, I, I, and that's, so we have it verified with, with the history, but there's also like a deep knowing, I think, too, that can come when, because they are very much marching in, in one direction, and it just felt so not the right way to go. And so I just think there's a mystery to it, too. Right. So that, and we count on there being those exceptions, right? In the midst of that kind of craziness, we count on enough people going, wait a minute, is this really, right? I don't want to throw a bomb in this. Oh, please, right. So, Samani <laughs> Shana, David. Why should this class be different from any other? Yeah, that's true. I'm going to say that this I think that is definitely what fuels, yes, the the kind of str- strident language and so attitude we hear, yes. The community 
side of his wall and says, what are you kidding me? That's bright tape. Verified tape is my piece. Who's walking through that? So, so that is where Laura and Paula have talked to we won't know for a while. But we don't want to take chances. So that, well, that becomes the question. It, which, which path is going to take us down? We shouldn't have risked that. And both camps feel that if we don't do it the way they want to do it, we're doomed. Both camps feel that way. Which one's right? What, hopefully we're having a fruitful enough discussion. Correct. You certainly have to look at that and say that you measured it by the standards of thought and experience in thousands of years of history. You'd have to look at the Israeli position and say, I take you very, very seriously. Seriously, yes. And so the other side is just as serious about verified experiences at war never works, mm-hmm. saber rattling never works. Mm-hmm. But, you know, a, a real, lasting, engaged peace is the only way. So both sides feel just as strongly that verified experience tells us do it my way or what you know what i think so this is for me if everybody in the universe were taking this stuff seriously at least we'd know we're doing our best to figure out the best answer i'm concerned that all we do now is talk about how bad and wrong Everybody who doesn't agree with me is, and so the conversation doesn't get moved towards verified, you're right to a better answer. See, I think that's the limits of this. I think this is a great piece, but I think there are practical limits <clears throat> to how one views. Maybe I'm more comfortable with a difference between knowledge and wisdom. Mm-hmm. Sure. Okay. So then let's go to that. What, what's the wise decision here? Each is as, exactly what you're doing. All right, but I'm not. So, right? I'm not. So if I argue that against that position, if all we're doing is arguing to make the other one wrong, we never move towards that's wisdom. <laughs> and that's where I feel like if, if we were really all of us trying to get to, yeah, wisdom, to wisdom, we'd at least be giving it our best shot. But we're not even doing that. That's we're so busy yelling and pointing and whatever that... We're not moving it towards anything. Yelling and pointing and arguing, that's our tradition. <laughs> Lishma. Right, I mean, Lishem Shamayim. Lishem Shamayim. Only for the sake of heaven. My concern is that it's Sinat Chinam. It is baseless hatred, which destroyed the temple according to our tradition. That, that's what, you're exactly right. Arguing and debating is absolutely fundamental to our tradition when it's for the sake of wisdom, for the sake of the best answer, for the sake of what's going to save us all. That should be where we strive. That, that should, that's what we're reaching for. But too often, I, I'm afraid our debate and argument in our culture right now is not about the best answer. It's about I want to be right, you know, or whatever. And you got to be wrong for me to be right. And that, and I'm not just saying in politics. Rich, poor, black, white, right, wrong, Democrat, Republican. You know, it just, it's binary. Our conversation is so binary right now. We have no, we don't, we're, whoever said it over here, we're not holding the gray. It's also black and white right now. That, that I just, you know, this is about, can we just settle down and try to really reach into what's the wise, just thing to do?
I don't see any way out of having that kind of discussion with somebody who has an applicable. Can't get the word right. Apocalyptic. 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 Thank you. It's really hard. No, it's true. I'm having this trouble with some friends. Yeah. And it's, you know, there's no possibility for one. Right. And that and that's really hard. It it is. It's really hard. There are a number of religions and people who are religious and various religions who have that kind of view. Which is why I agree, I'll quote him again, Rabbi Harold Kushner, who said, if it's that kind of thing, he doesn't even call it religion. He says that's not religion. He's not, he's not even willing to use the word religion about that anymore. He's gotten that. Like, he's that wise that he's got that kind of abiding faith that he's like, he won't even call that religion. I like that answer the last time. <laughs> I know, right? Because, because you can't, you just, you just have to walk away. Totally, because that's just not even, there's just nowhere to go with that. Well, it's sort of kind of feeling about this situation for that reason. Mm-hmm. And to Laura, who got, you know, wrote this beautiful piece and had someone, it talks about how Torah study prepared her to open her home and their family to this Guatemalan young woman who needed a place to live. And the comment was, your rabbi's not a rabbi and what you're learning isn't Torah. It's like, you know, it's like, and she's like, where, where do you, where do you, what does that got to do? Right? Like, where do you go with that? There's, there's very little place you can go with that kind of stuff. Totally. Well, they're the founding panelists who said this is. But they did say, good for you. That was very nice to do. There was something redeeming. Excellent. When you're ready to study Torah, I'm sure you'll do very well. When you're ready to study real Torah, you can call them. They won't let me. And they'll they'll welcome you in. So, the last page of Rabbi Yael Shai, she quotes Rilke, Blanche, we'll get some poetry, in letters to a young poet. Be patient toward all, David, that is unsolved in your heart, and try to love the questions themselves, like locked rooms and like books that are now written in a very foreign tongue. Live the questions now. Perhaps you will then gradually, without noticing it, live along some distant day into the answer. May we do so with open eyes and open hearts. Shabbat Shalom. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.